Hello and welcome to Gameology episode 44. I'm one of your current hosts, Matthew Falva, and I'm joined by... Attila, Gabriel Briansky. We're talking about cutscenes, their place in gaming, how much is too much, how much is too little, the important ones in the past. Right now you're looking at a video of Nate and Sam from Uncharted 4, a series well known for its cutscenes, uh, a series that tries to balance cinematics with gameplay. Some people would say it's just like watching a movie and, and pressing a few buttons here and there, but that's what we're here to talk about. Attila, why did you bring this topic up why'd you do it well it came up on our previous recording session we started we took a bit of a tangent into talking about cutscenes and your opinion versus my opinion on quick time events and i just figured it you know there's so much more to talk about in terms of cutscenes uh admittedly extra credits did a uh an episode on cutscenes recently or that i watched recently yeah so um there's uh there's just a few things that came from my mind that i felt like it deserved a uh, full show to itself to discuss all these different things well, they're very important. Once once you started getting this, um, the, the ability to put games on CDs, developers started making use of it. The Sega CD was maybe uh, one of those classic examples of technology jumping ahead too far, running before it could walk. And they had these very, very overly compressed, very tiny windows you would see. And it looked horrible. But it was impressive for the time. And, and they even tried having lots of sort of quick time event style gameplay where you would... So you, those- Sorry, yeah. those being the uh, FMVs or full motion video. Exactly, yeah. When video is a real stretch to call it, but there were you know, uh, certain games, like there was a, a boxing game where it was an actual real footage the entire time. But the problem with it is that when you would swing these hands out, it, it, the, there was, the hit detection was very poor. You didn't get that sense of feedback. Um, a game that did it a lot better was um, Power, Ranger for the, Power Rangers for the Sega CD, where they used all clips from the uh, first season and when they would have the fight scenes they would use my favorite yeah QTEs you'd have to press the buttons as they popped up reflexes um, you didn't get the feedback of you seeing anything actually like you didn't press a button and see an arm come out or anything you were just sort of progressing the scene along and trying not to lose health and now we've gone on to their they've sort of settled to the spot where cutscenes become a, a thing in between the action or to start something off or to show big moments when they want to get that increased visual fidelity. Right. So you launched into talking about cutscenes where they have like a, a cinematic style of cutscene is what I classify those as. Yeah. But I mean, we've had cutscenes like um, pretty much as, as far back as Donkey Kong when you have that first moment where he climbs the girders and then smashes them all down. Okay. Like just the idea of setting the scene with some moment of like um, gameplay where the player is not directly making inputs, mm-hmm. I'd classify, I have a much more sort of um, broad classification for what is and is not a cutscene. And that's why I have sort of the subcategories of cutscenes, which you've been discussing what I call cinematic cutscenes. Sure. I mean, even on the, on the NES, you would have some beautiful... Uh, pixel art cutscenes where it would show just like a still image and maybe some text below to tell yeah, a story. Ninja Gaiden was like one of the most famous early yeah. cutscenes in terms of like they were doing some pretty awesome stuff. They're like they the ninjas, beautiful. the two of them running towards each other, these like really cinematic looking camera angles considering how little memory they had to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like the, the famous like jump 
flash in midair against the moon, and then one falls, the other falls, and then one topples over. So yeah, there there have been a uh, cutscenes in many form or fashion. Um, you know, real quick this, about that, I yeah. think that Ninja Gaiden is a good example that no matter the technology, you need to remember the basics of cinematography because now you mm-hmm. are making a movie in that. As long as the framing and, and sort of the angles and as long as you are technically making uh, an art or artistically an interesting piece of cinematography, the technology doesn't matter as much. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that... Um the cutscene, like the 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 story itself in Ninja Gaiden, kind of goes a little all over the place. But for the time, it made for a very compelling narrative, I guess, just because it was being presented in this um, really like highly cinematic fashion. That it was it was using these like differences in camera angles and perspective, and it just made the the game seem all that more exciting. And it was a reward, like getting to see these uh, little bits of. Like content acted out mm-hmm. um, in comparatively much more like high fidelity graphics compared to the rest of the game. Um, in between, like these just brutally difficult uh, moments of gameplay. So there, I think, is one of the good uses of cutscenes is having something that like you have the gameplay, and then separate from that, you have this like little reward at the end of completing a particularly difficult level. So you get to watch something and then progress the story. Mm-hmm. You know, um, an interesting game to look at is Half-Life. Very mm-hmm. seminal game. People point oh, yeah, to it I mean, as a- Every one of Valve's games has their completely unique take on cutscenes. And, and Half-Life was famous because it didn't ever take control away from the player. You were able to move and interact. Everything was happening in real time. Now we see a little bit of limited control with a lot of cutscenes. Maybe they'll use it like a real-time engine and you can control the camera, but everything that was happening in that Half-Life intro was happening sort of um, in the environment around you. People were coming up and talking to you and saying these cutscenes. And that was... I think people were kind of cutscene overloaded by that point, and then to, to step away from it brought back that immersion. So I think that that's one of the biggest things that cutscenes have against them and that game developers need to balance is that video games are an interactive medium and when you are taking the player taking the control away from the player that can kill the immersion and that can really ruin the flow and that's one of the biggest challenges when using them I mean it it is and it isn't because like when you have um, a story like what Valve was creating there are some kinds of stories that you can tell from that entirely first-person perspective. It's basically like a, the same as a first-person novel. You're only seeing things through the character's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, uh, like, cinemata- um Come on, the like camera director of photography. There's, there's no control yeah. over that because it's entirely where the player decides to look. And as a result, they actually have to go out of their way to use a lot of tricks to help direct the player's attention like if they want you to look in a specific way they have to lead your eye with something in that direction otherwise you'll just miss it and something potentially important um just completely passes the player by so i think it was definitely interesting experiment to have these games that are told entirely from this first person perspective but uh like you couldn't have a moment out of halo 3 where you're playing as master chief you got the boots on the ground and then a cutscene happens where it jumps to the scene of a starship, and you're seeing the perspective from the bridge when the uh, these massive starships are like firing between each other. Uh, you can't have that 
you can't have that jump to a different point in the narrative if it's always right. done from first-person perspective. So the kinds of stories you can tell entirely from one character's perspective are somewhat limited, and Valve works super well within those limitations. So we never feel like it's limited because they're doing things so well. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of stories that you couldn't tell from only one perspective. Yeah, that's definitely one of the advantages is that you can shift around and uh, like most mediums, you can give that other perspective. I mean, and the other advantages are you can have increased visual fidelity and resolution. You can do, you can put on the type of graphics and visuals that wouldn't be possible, say, in, in the real-time engine. And, you know, another advantage is that it can be used as a pacing mechanism to, to sort of let the player relax and have a break. I mean, I'm a big proponent that I think most games should start, not all, of course, but I think generally you should start off with a big bang. You should give the player a lot of control. You should set the tone, and you shouldn't ease off the gas until a little bit in. But if you start off with a lot of tension and then relax and, and give the player a cutscene, that's when they usually know, okay, you're not in danger anymore, unless this is a game with cutscenes, and then Attila's in the danger of not liking it. But that's, no. that's sort of letting no. the foot off the gas. No, that's you said. You said cutscenes. You meant quick time events. Did I say? Oh, okay. I you said, said um, yeah. I was saying that cutscenes. <clears throat> you know, you're not in danger unless they have quick time events. Yeah. Okay. There we go. But um, you know, it, I think that like when I was designing Zarnok Fortress, the game begins with the cutscene to set the tone of like, you know, who is Robo? Who are the Zarnok? What's mm-hmm. going on here? And most people just wanted to skip that, just get straight to the game. So I guess you really shouldn't start a game with a cutscene unless you don't give people the ability to skip it. Um, I don't know if it was just the particular subset of people who I was testing the game with or whether people uh, didn't know about the story so they didn't care. Like if this is a like an Uncharted game, you don't want to skip the opening cutscene because this is a famous franchise well-known for its cutscenes. You don't want to skip them. So maybe people were just skipping the cutscene in my game because they've never heard of this before. All they want to do is get straight to the gameplay. Maybe. I, I think video um, games in, in that sense, they're a little different from the movie where, from a movie where you, uh, you want people to care about it before a cutscene is going to make sense. And just having a cutscene with characters you haven't had that connection with and will control... I think is what makes it difficult. Uncharted 4 actually starts off with something that looks like it's going to be a cutscene. You're like, wow, this boat way out in the middle of the ocean. And then Naughty Dog has this great little trick where they sort of bring the camera off and they'll often trick you into thinking you're watching a cutscene, but you actually have total control over it. Yeah, the ability that uh, Naughty Dog has to transition smoothly between um, what appears to be like a cutscene, like the sort of sweeping camera shot, and then it just focuses in on the player and you're just playing. Mm-hmm. Like that was something that I saw experimented with a little bit in um, Halo 3 ODST and then Halo Reach. Just the idea that they would transition from a cutscene to first person footage from the player's perspective and it's still in sort of cutscene mode. But then they just, like, the black bars fade away and you're given complete control of the character. So that was definitely interesting. And it helps because the Halo cutscenes were all done in-engine. So it was very Mm -hmm. easy to have, uh, like, shift from, like, uh, the, the, the cinematic stuff happening to giving the player control because it's all being done at the same level of graphical fidelity. There's no video that has to, like, cut or crossfade into gameplay. It would just happen. 
Sure. I, I think with something like Final Fantasy VII, a lot of people, when you watch those first commercials for it in the late 90s, and, and those really probably won a lot of people over into like thinking, I have to have this game. It looks so good. They were using like not just cutting edge in the video game world, but they were using industry leading in Hollywood people to work on the CGI scenes for this. CGI sounds funny. The whole game is obviously computer generated, but for these FMV scenes, you know, these full motion scenes. Um, but it was very jarring to go back to that sort of blocky um, polygonal style after that. So I think that that can be even more jarring. And when you use that real time, the in-game engine you can keep that immersion you can also do really interesting things if this is a game where you can put on uh, different costumes or um, you know you can customize your character in any way if it is in game you can keep them looking the same um, sometimes that results in really funny moments uh, where you know characters might kind of end up in the in the wrong spot it might be a real serious scene and you got some goofy character wearing a funny hat who's kind of standing in the middle or like doing an idle animation but i mean that's kind of one of the great things about video games and because you're interacting and you're customizing and you're controlling to keep that going through the cutscenes, I think is a part of what keeps it immersive. Right. They, they really started to let you do that in uh, halo reach where you could actually customize your character's armor set. Mm. And then they would use that same character model through the cutscenes. And there are a lot of games like uh, the mass effect series or the witcher, which let you, you know, have your character wearing whatever customizable gear that you want. Um, and they'll retain that in the cutscenes because they're all done in engine and they're not just this, this pre-baked cinematic. Um, the one thing that is a little unfortunate in some of those circumstances, like with the, the situation you were talking about where a character ends up in the middle of the cutscene where they're not supposed to be, it can be a little immersion breaking. Like there's a lot of things that involves doing cutscene uh, in a real-time engine, especially in a village where, uh, like in The Witcher 3, you have... Uh, characters that are programmed to move along specific paths and right. um, to make the, the world feel alive, but then you have the danger of a character like walking in front of the camera mm-hmm. as it's happening. And the The Witcher three specifically, I, I saw a video about how they use like special uh, zones that are set up to prevent characters from walking into a uh, like cutscene zone. Mm-hmm. So it, they use a lot of sort of like bend over backwards tricks to make sure that the cutscenes are as cinematic as possible while still being done in engine and like live. Yeah, that's that's smart. And and it, it seems to be the most intelligent ways to go about it from that sort of fundamental zone where you're making these blanket rules. Like if there's a cutscene, this will be a zone. People don't walk in that zone, and then you just try to make it look as natural as possible. And since the people are generally on the on the periphery, these NPCs, you you know, if, maybe if you stared at them, it might seem weird that they're avoiding a certain area because that's like a cutscene area. But because the focus is on, on Geralt and what you're doing and the task at hand and the 400 side quests you need to complete, you're not really going to notice if uh, you know if one of the paths looks a bit funny. Yeah, your 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 attention is very um, finely controlled in those moments, um, and I think that just in general, the other advantage to doing cutscenes in game or in engine is that you do have the opportunity to present like uh, branching moments, mm. uh, like different narrative choices. Um, Mass Effect had the whole system of the renegade. Uh, I tried to say both words at the both same time. Them, yeah. uh, Rene- Renegade and Paragon interrupts. So the, uh, for those not familiar, your 
uh, the entire game was broken up into this binary morality system of either doing good things, Paragon, or renegade evil acts. And at any point, you could press one of the triggers that would correspond to um, like a good or an evil action. So that, that could be something like uh, if you see a character um, running away from you, you could pull a like renegade interrupt and your character would pull out a gun and shoot them. Or you could have a moment where you see... Uh, like somebody taking aim at you from the distance and you could pull a paragon interrupt and you'd like grab one of your squad mates and duck down into cover. Mm-hmm. So those were kind of quick time ish events yeah. that just, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know whether quick. I did or dislike, like don't, don't get me wrong. I don't intensely dislike quick time events. I know that there are some people, um, Yahtzee Korsha of zero punctuation in particular, uh, despises quick time events, and I, I guess he's kind of convinced me over to his way of thinking, um, just because they, just I guess because of the the random nature of the buttons. Like I talked about this in the previous episode, but if you have um, buttons that have a specific function, and then you carry that over to being the same button that you'd press in the cutscene, then that feels more palatable to me because then there's no inconsistency. There's no like wait for that moment and then see what the random button is and mash that to trigger whatever's supposed to happen to progress the cutscene. Um, one particularly great example of this uh, massive spoilers here for Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Are you familiar with the game? Love it. Okay, so then you know the ending cutscene in that game. Yes. Um, you have the moment where you've defeated the boss, I think is the character's name. Yeah. The snake against the boss. And Snake pulls a gun on her, and the camera starts to pull back, and you're waiting for this to happen. You're waiting for him to fire, and they realize, and you, the player realizes, oh, they've left the control of this up to me. I have to be the one to press the button to shoot this character. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was particularly powerful, and that's an exceptionally good example of what I'm talking about in terms of using buttons that you have control of in the game using those same controls in the cutscene so that you preserve the understanding of what button does what and then have it make sense in the context of the cutscene. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they did something uh, similar. Not similar. I think that's a, that's a much better example. But in Metal Gear Solid 4, there's a, a long scene near the end where he needs to crawl through an area that will probably kill him and he's going to mm-hmm. sacrifice himself. And you basically just hold up while this epic music is going on and they're, and they're uh, intercutting all the different action that's happening. Um, but I like your example a lot better because you have to... It's kind of There's a, a spot in, in a Telltale game where you have to do something gross, like pull somebody's eye out and the game makes you, you know, go in there and dig it out. And, you know, that's a way of giving people uh, agency. Speaking of Metal Gear Solid and their cutscenes, they have been accused uh-huh. of sometimes having too many. So I looked up the stats for them. Metal Gear Solid 4 had 11 hours of gameplay and eight and a half hours of cutscenes. So that's 11, so that's like in total, you know, near 20. Metal Gear Solid 1 had eight hours of gameplay, three hours of cutscenes. This is counting Codex, too. Metal Gear Solid 2 had seven hours of gameplay and five hours of cutscenes, almost as bad as Metal Gear Solid 4 in terms of ratio. And Metal Gear Solid 3 had a big, robust 11 hours of gameplay, but only five hours of cutscenes. Wow. Like, I think what can sort of drive people away from that is how front-loaded some of those cutscenes are like yeah. 
it's it's not that like if you told me that there's a game that has eight hours of cutscenes in it, immediately I'm going to bulk at that number. Like irrespective of how long, I almost said irregardless. That's not a word. Um, irrespective of how long the overall experience of the game is, if you say straight up, this game has eight hours of just cinematics because that's, mm-hmm. that's what it is mostly in the Metal Gear series is cinematic cutscenes where you're not doing anything maybe you're pressing A to advance uh, codec dialogue um, but whenever it was voiced I think that just advanced, advanced automatically so yeah um, there's a lot of that time where you're just sitting back and not doing anything I think that if those individual cutscenes were interspersed throughout a very long experience then that's fine. I don't think there's inherently wrong with having lots of dialogue in a game mm-hmm. as long as it's not like five minutes right at the beginning. Like give the player, um, sort of going back to how I probably should have done the beginning to Sonic Fortress, I probably should have just given players control of the character right from the start and then let them get to a point where a cutscene could kick in. Because they, the way the game is structured is you beat the sort of opening section of the game and then it clicks over to a cutscene and I didn't find that most people skipped that, like once they got to that sort of interstitial cutscene between the beginning of the game and being on the fortress proper, people didn't skip that one Mm -hmm. but it really feels like people want to get to the game right away, so okay start the game with gameplay that's a good starting point I think that's a pretty much a good ground rule unless you have a very specific narrative reason for why that's not the case um, you know, I can imagine maybe you want to start the game with like a quote, something that's going to set the tone for the game. Um, sure. War, war never changes. Exactly. Something like that, which is quick to the point, And then you give the player control or at least partial control. Um, I started into playing Pokemon Heart Gold recently, and they're pretty good about just like getting through the opening stuff of Here's what Pokemon are. We live in this world together. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, are you a boy or a girl? Enter your name. Okay, all that stuff's out of the way. You get a little bit of control. Your player character walks downstairs. Then your mom says, here's how to save and open your start menu and whatever. Okay, relatively brief. Then you have control again. You can walk over to the lab and get your Pokemon. And like The very beginning of that game is super cutscene heavy, but they did a good job in uh, spacing it out in terms of like letting your uh, character move just like have a little bit of control um obviously in an rpg game like pokemon they have to set up a lot of things Mm -hmm. and explain a whole lot of stuff uh one thing that they did was really nice is that when the game first begins you have an option to say uh hey do you need to know how i think the way they phrase it is how adventuring works and you can say like no i've done this before so right there um I know Super Mario Brother, uh, Super Mario RPG Bowser's Inside Story is a game I saw which did that a lot, where your character, um, you, you had a character in the game that was about to like, go on this big, long explanation of how a mechanic worked in the game, um, which again, I consider this to be a type of cutscene, uh, sort of straddling the line between cutscene and tutorial, mm-hmm. but it's still this moment in the gameplay where the player either has very limited control or where they're like watching something happening in front of them like watching um in the case of pokemon they're very infamous for how long they take to explain how to catch pokemon Mm -hmm. if you caught if you learn how to catch pokemon once you know how to do it the rest of your life but for some reason they always take like a three minute long cutscene to very slowly show you 
how to catch a Pokemon. And, um, and out of context, so three minutes doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're starting off, I mean, if you're starving and I put a pizza in front of you and then I tell you about how good the pizza is going to be for three minutes before you're allowed to touch it, that's a long time. Yeah, I'd say that's a good analogy for it. So anytime, whether it's Bowser's Inside Story or in Pokemon or just in general, if you give the player an option to say like, hey, I've already done this before. Let's skip on to the the meat or the narrative component of the story. Don't mire things down with uh, tutorial dialogue. Because I think uh, anytime a cutscene is like tutorial oriented, Mm -hmm. you've seen it once, you've seen it a thousand times. Those are the ones that people are going to want to skip for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a huge problem I've had with Zelda after, may say, Majora's Mask or so. I mean, Wind Waker wasn't so bad, but um, Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess just started off with these huge, long tutorial sections, lots of cutscenes, lots of dialogue before you cared. And I loved Breath of the Wild. It was a breath of fresh air because you started off um, and they spoke a little bit, but you immediately had control, and they explained the things while you at least were getting familiar with the controls, yearning to explore, walk out into that from a dark cave, see the world. A quick little cutscene just kind of showing you the view, and then it's back to you controlling it and exploring, and it's up to you. Then you don't really sit down and talk to people for quite a while, other than one old man. And it's I think you need yeah. to, you just want to let people get in there. They, they've turned on a game to play, and you need to put your... Put your your sort of design um, thoughts into that headspace of they are there to play a game. That's why they're doing it. And you just need to let them do it right out of the gate. And then either explain why it's happening in a way that's still pretty engaging. I know some of the Assassin's Creed games, um, they, you know, they've been criticized really heavily of just the first four or five hours are just like constant retreads and tutorials and lots of following missions. I, I just started Final Fantasy 15 and it's, a lot of walking around and listening and just sitting in a car and more cutscenes and I don't care about anybody yet. So you need to have that gameplay first before you start showing people. Before we get a little too far away from Legend of Zelda, I'd like to talk about a different um, sort of classification of cutscene. One of the things that the Zelda series um, that comes up a lot in Zelda games, and really any kind of game that is structured in this sort of puzzle-solving um theme in mind is the idea that like link will walk over and step on a switch and then controls taken away from the player the camera pans over and shows you here's what the effect of pressing that switch has been Mm -hmm. and then it pans back to link um they do that like in mario as well in the 3d mario games you'll uh do something you'll step on a switch and then the camera jumps to what that has affected in the environment and then pans back over to i I love when it does that direct line from the object of interest back to you so you know where you are in relation to it in yeah. perspective super helpful exactly so i i think that that's one of those things where um i don't think anyone would complain about having that kind of cutscene in the game mm-hmm. like there's a game i played on ios called uh legend or legends of grimrock and it was a game where you could put a torch like into a sconce on the wall and a door would open somewhere Okay. somewhere right yeah useless. probably in the room that you're in but you have no idea and you just have to sort of do this like trial and error thing of like looking around to see okay where did that door actually open or mm-hmm. stepping on the switch what did that do not having it made it just feel like almost infuriating of like okay this is just now a process of trial and error mm-hmm. of like trying to see okay i did this thing what did that affect what did that change um and then for me it it feels like it's breaking a very fundamental rule of game design which is good feedback 
Sure. So using the camera to show, like, okay, the player has uh, stepped on this switch, and now this door opens. Um, another thing that they do sometimes is you walk into a room for the first time, and they pull the camera out and just sort of fly through the room. Mm-hmm. And they give you an overview and uh, just a different perspective than you would have in normal gameplay. And that can sort of set things up of like, oh, look, there's an enemy that's um, here behind this vantage point. He's going to try and shoot arrows at you. Or, hey, from this camera perspective, you can really see there's a whole bunch of um, fire slugs on the ceiling. I'm playing through Twilight Princess with my sister, which is why that's coming up. Um, And just like giving the player this perspective so that you know, oh, hey, I can see those things. It's much more obvious from this camera angle. Because when you're actually playing the game, you really get tunnel vision. You're focused like right in on what's directly in front of you. So when you have hazards dropping from the ceiling, they're going to catch you off guard. Even mm-hmm. though the existence of these fire slugs has been throughout the entire dungeon, um, they're going to catch the player off guard unless they have this moment where they take control away from the player and then your perspective kind of broadens to fill the screen. You can see like, oh, okay, there's some things I have to worry about. There's a switch I'm going to need to hit to open this door to the next room. Um, so two very similar but related sort of mini cutscenes of like very utility cutscenes. Like they uh, are taking control away from the player just briefly. And sometimes they'll even just do it once. Sometimes they'll make it so that you step on a switch and it shows you, hey, this door has opened and then they'll pan back to the player. And then you step on the switch a second time and the camera doesn't pop away from you again. Um, I think that comes down to just playtesting of when they figured out, like, oh, wow, people really are missing what this button does. We need to make the camera pan over to that every time or just the Mm -hmm. first time. And also, um, what I love about that is that its use of restraint and how minimal it is in a way that sometimes when people are creating something, they have the tendency that everything they create needs to be the biggest, most robust version of that possible, whereas... If all you need is to quickly whip a camera over, look at a door, and whip back as fast as possible with the knowledge that the player is playing maybe dozens and dozens of hours, and that is not the most important thing to them, you don't. some games might make the mistake of, well, let's have a really cool cutscene, and then we'll have some funny dialogue and a bunch of back and forth, and they're just talking about a door opening, whereas the player is screaming at the TV like, I don't care about this. Let's go. I want to go through the door. And that's... So, I mean, that's, a, that's just a great thing Nintendo usually does in general, and Zelda almost always does is they have that restraint and, and that minimalism that, that's a great point i when like as soon as you said cutscenes, i just went to sort of the more traditional cinematic cutscenes that i always thought of and i didn't think about basically any time you're watching something where the interactivity is taken away that is classified and all these little utilitarian style cutscenes that are super useful yeah i mean even um even valve who was known for their cutscenes where they never or their yeah, essentially cutscenes where they never take control away from the player. Sometimes they cheat at that. Like in Portal 2, relatively early in the game, your character ends up in a pneumatic tube. Mm-hmm. They're just in this giant pneumatic tube. And you can look around, and it's kind of cool to have a character in front of you spouting dialogue at you. And, oh, look, I can move the camera in 360 degrees. It's not the complete and total freedom that you necessarily have during other cutscenes in the game. But it's just a moment where they sort of need to like sit you down and tell you something about the game and have you paying attention. The best way to do that is to not have the player character distracted by trying to solve some puzzle or just walking past something and ignoring the dialogue. Mm-hmm. So in 
keeping the game alive, like I think that's one of the best um, functions of voiceover in a game because that means that you can have an audio signal playing to the player and they can keep moving through it as opposed to having to come to a dead stop and listen to what a character is saying to them. Um, Metal Gear Solid 5 did that extremely well because they had you had a series that was all about taking away control and making you watch a movie and then instead they just gave you these tapes to listen to and then mm-hmm. you could go about your business you could be stealthy you could be killing that game right, is and listen to them whenever you want yeah and it, and that game was and it really that was so intuitive with the actual design of the game where you'd be uh, researching things at your base everything was happening in real time and there's a lot of sort of like time killing wait for a helicopter that kind of thing so it worked well that design right but those kind of things were the those those tapes were not like mission critical it's not like you need to hear this now mm-hmm. um in Gears of War, they have a lot of moments where your characters just start walking exceptionally slowly oh, down a hallway. Okay. Right. And it's this sort of weird feeling of like, why don't you just stop me in my place? Because this this like walking through tar feeling is terrible. Yeah. Um, so I guess they, they wanted to like grant this feeling of, oh, look, you still have control, but you have to walk so slowly that even if you're never relenting on the control stick and always walking straight forward that dialogue is going to conclude before you get on to the next action segment yeah that was a pretty popular mechanic around that era in the call duty franchise too when it got very cinematic is that they wanted to give you that sort of illusion of control but you're not getting through that door until this character is done talking because he's the only one that's allowed to open a door yeah so i don't think that that's necessarily the the best way of handling that sort of thing um definitely going more from the perspective of like uh like if two characters are in a dialogue like having the camera like panning back and forth between them um constructing to go a little bit back to the mass effect and witcher style cutscenes, mm-hmm. uh constructing these moments where there's um the there is like the this semi cinema like uh, I, I keep like missing a word here, but the, the, just the idea of the camera control, like going back and forth, focusing on different people, um, cinematography. I guess probably. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the, just the idea that like all these characters, if the camera's focusing on them, you have to animate everything. Right. And in a game which, like you, you know, you mentioned um, Metal Gear Solid having hours and hours of cutscenes. Um, uh, compared to the amount of dialogue that's going to be in like a Mass Effect game, like how how many hours of dialogue are there in, in these sort of like RPG style games? And all of that is not le- animated to the same degree as the Metal Gear co- Solid cutscenes, but there is hours and hours and hours, far more than I'd say most of the Metal Gear games, at least. Sure, um, for sure. Just but what they do is they have uh, they have varying levels of what how much attention they give to those cutscenes, right? And in in the case of uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, they had a bit of an issue where they didn't pay enough attention to what was going on oh, yeah. to some of those characters. That's a whole episode there. Oh, yeah, could could be. But just the the idea that um, these cutscenes have to be animated, I wanted to use this as kind of a, a jumping off point. Of like, well, why don't you make all cutscenes interactive? Why don't you make everything in engine? Why don't you do that? Um, so the the main problem that I foresee in creating a cutscene interactive is that you have to uh, first thing to have meaningful interaction, not just surface level tertiary stuff, you have to add in failure points. You have to consider, well, what happens if the player doesn't does not succeed at this? Um, how do you handle that? Is it something that's significant? Like if the if the player has to 
have a moment in their cutscene where they have to dodge a bullet and they fail to, well, then you have to, I guess you die, you have to start the cutscene over. That's kind of weird. Right. Um, is the character instead just grazed by that bullet if you don't dodge out of the way? And, well, then it's not really meaningful distinction. Mm-hmm. So if for the effort involved in, like, making something interactive, uh, you have to create a, a moment to, like, capture the player's input. You have to have not just this, like, split-second, like, frame-perfect moment where the character is going to hit the button and dodge out of the way. You have to have, like, a very clearly framed, like, character is raising their gun, holding it up to your player, and then probably even, like, a, a slow-motion shot of them pulling the trigger, and then you know, like, oh, okay, i got to press the button now to dodge out of the way. So all that is way more difficult than just having a um, real-time moment where a character pulls up a gun and tries to shoot at your player and they dodge out of the way. Just doing that as a cinematic is not complicated in the slightest, mm-hmm. but adding in all those extra layers of interactivity, potential failure, uh, it just makes, like, it would be untenable to create that much variation in every single cutscene that you have in your game. So that's why some things just have to be uh, cinematic. They can't always be interactive. Uh, and really what they should be doing is taking as much of what can be done in gameplay and just moment-to-moment stuff and making that non-cutscene just have that be a, like a dialogue between characters um, and then only taking the stuff that really uh, like you, you, there's no point in having the moment where your characters are like suiting up and putting their armor on there's no point in making that interactive uh, especially because the animation models would go crazy right. trying to accommodate like oh if the players like putting an uh, like a gauntlet on and they start walking downstairs you have to have like the the different animation systems layering over each other like one thing's happening and then if the player tries to grab a handrail but then they're also trying to fasten a gauntlet like it that could go crazy mm-hmm. so present that part of the game as a cutscene um and then present other fantastical things that aren't going to happen as part of normal gameplay stuff that doesn't justify being made into its own mechanic because it's only going to happen once maybe twice um you don't want to design a whole control scheme just for that moment that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. so ultimately what does and does not become a cutscene is influenced heavily by what the development team considers important and what they can uh budget the time for uh but i think ultimately we don't want to like get rid of cutscenes try to make everything 100 percent interactive all the time because then we'd be losing the uh the, just this this i guess a level of control that sometimes you do really want to aim a camera at someone's face specifically so you can see the reaction you know I'm not saying that we want to turn games into TV shows or movies or any of that kind of thing, but there's some things that games can take from those and really uh, like incorporate into the gameplay experience, uh, just the narrative experience, mm-hmm. without detracting from the game overall. Sounds like a wrap. Pretty much. All right, that's going to do for this episode. In two weeks, we're going to have an episode all about Super Mario World. It's part of our series on the Mario franchise. You can find my stuff at a90skid.com. There's an audio version and a video version of this podcast. If you rate it on iTunes, 
It really, really helps us out. So if you feel like doing something nice today, do it. I'm on Twitter at GameThinkTalk and Attila. You can follow me on Twitter at Attila Gabriel or my sort of general talk about games, uh, games that I'm working on handle at Bluish Green Pro. You can also check out my website, bluishgreenproductions.com, where you can submit questions to be answered or comments about the show. And uh, yeah, if you like the show, please consider spreading the word. Tell someone that you think would like the show about it. It really helps us out. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Bye-bye.